Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on our Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. And thanks for listening. Another morning of a political talk. And as uh, we get into the critical month of October, you know, we look at elections as being November. Of course, they're early November, so October is crunch time. And of course, in our community also comes with the late Yuntif season, late in the election cycle, and uh, which is, of course, adds its own dynamic as we try and pay attention to both our spiritual matters as well as the political matters going on around the country. And uh, we see ourselves actually in a pretty predictable electoral map from the presidential perspective here. Uh, you know, we had had this idea that the Trump candidacy, that Trumpism, that Trump was going to rewrite the electoral map. He was going to put states that had never been in play into play as if they were uh, as if they were, you know, now bringing those Reagan Democrats home as, you know, he was going to rewrite the map uh, that Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, the upper Rust Belt, where they're going to go into the red column where they hadn't been for many, many uh, cycles, and yet we now see that the battlegrounds have, in effect, in a l- little bit, now shifted to predictable, traditional types of battlegrounds where the Republicans have must-win states in order to win the presidency. You know, Donald Trump must win Florida. He must win Ohio. There is a strategy that I that certainly is possible that he doesn't win Pennsylvania and can still win the presidency. Uh, there, there are some interesting states as well right now that seem to be coming into play because of the strength, the relative strength of Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate. We'll get to that in a – you know what? Let's just get to that now. Let's just talk about Gary Johnson for a second because uh, people out there – you know, people ask me who, uh, who I'm supporting. And you know, I don't like to throw it here on the show because this is not about me. This is about politics. And, you know, my personal opinions, I try not to necessarily get in the way of the way I think and analyze and try and pontificate. That's kind of what I'm doing. Pontificate with regard to the election. And, you know, I've talked about Gary Johnson to people. I've said I'm not supporting. I'm not a Clinton supporter. I'm not a Trump supporter. Um, I think I've made that pretty clear. In fact, uh, you know, I do value the listener feedback out there. And the certainly gotten a lot of it with regard to Trump. People think I'm too anti-Trump. Uh, I don't really think I'm think I'm sufficiently anti-Clinton as well. Um, I'm just feel that Trump has a lot of flaws, and there's nothing wrong with pointing out the flaws. I think he has particular flaws on the political side as well, where he's just running a poor campaign. You know, everybody feels that well, he's he's surprised he's he's surprised all the critics. You know, the bar is set very low for Donald Trump in general. I mean, even if you look at the expectations with regard to the debate, it was like, can he stay calm for 90 minutes? And therefore, that would be a win for him. Well, yeah, no, he didn't stay calm. He didn't stay. He did get unhinged. And so therefore, he failed even that low bar. But let's just take that aside. Um, You know, I'll get to that a little bit later. Let's save that thought for a second with specifically regard to Donald Trump after we finish this one. Gary Johnson. So Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, has done better so far, at least in polling, than any libertarian candidate has – I'm sorry, any third-party candidate has done since Ross Perot. And if you remember, 
Back in 1992, George H.W. Bush versus William Jefferson Clinton and Ross Perot. And William Jefferson Clinton did not win a majority of the vote. He won a plurality of the vote, but he won the Electoral College, became president because Ross Perot was in there and took a lot of votes from George Bush 41. That would be H.W. Bush. And... Gary Johnson at one point was looking that because of the historic unpopularity of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, Gary Johnson and Bill Weldes is running mate, two former governors, two former Republican governors of blue states, one of New Mexico, the other of Massachusetts, were looking like they could siphon votes from both parties. And because they because of those that unpopularity, that there would be a place for anti Trump Republicans to go, there would be a place for anti Clinton Democrats to go, and they could coalesce in that libertarian candidacy. Now, Gary Johnson has had some famous flubs of the last week. Uh, well, not even flubs. It's it's cringeworthy. These are cringeworthy moments. Uh, yes, if it happened once. Now, the guy admits that he smokes marijuana pretty much regularly, and he's pro legalization of marijuana. You know, I'm not going to let my personal opinion come into this as far as what whether he should or shouldn't do it. I mean, I think it's absolutely ridiculous for a candidate for president to be smoking, to be admitting that he's smoking marijuana, which is, you know, a, a controlled substance, illegal to go ahead and be smoking that on a regular basis. It's just, I mean, what a ridiculous message to be sending. But leave that aside. He, the what is Aleppo? Now, okay. A lot of people can't name cities in the United States. But, of course, it's Aleppo, it's Syria. It's kind of the epicenter, as is, as was said, of the Syrian war, which has now been raging tragically for a number of years, where people are dying, and it's a major humanitarian crisis. And the Russians are involved, so it's a geopolitical affair. It's the kind of thing that if you're going to be president of the United States, you need to know about. You can't just kind of skirt it. You can't just say, what is Aleppo? And then you're asked, I mean, you have to expect you're going to do these interviews. You want the attention. You want the scrutiny. You want to be on national TV, right? The libertarians would want to be there. And Chris Matthews asks him, name your favorite foreign leader. And he can't name one. Not one. Not one. Not the chancellor of Germany, Merkel. Not Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada. Not David Cameron. Well, he was, sorry, the prime minister of the UK. Now it's a woman. Not Francois Hollande. I mean, I don't need to go through all the different people. But I mean, even Bibi Netanyahu, right? Kind of uh, the kind of person that you would think would be famously on the lips of many a politico in Washington. Well, now, of course, he's not from Washington. But at least the guy should have some tutoring. And then, you know, it's five days later and he's still joking about it. They say, oh, I, I can't name it. I don't like any of them, so therefore I can't name them. It, these are cringeworthy moments. And let's just say I probably will have to say that I will not be voting for Gary Johnson. But let's get back to Gary Johnson and how he's affecting the race. Gary Johnson, former governor of Mexico, is now polling like 25% in New Mexico. That potentially allows – now, New Mexico has gone Democratic, uh, very large Latino population – potentially gives Donald Trump an opportunity to win New Mexico. New Mexico had been a state that had been in play, as well as Colorado. Johnson polls very high there. Potentially, because of that, Hillary 
Clinton could lose the state that has been trending purple-ish and was looking because of a large Latino population that it would go into the Democratic column this year. So, but again, you know, and we're looking, of course, at North Carolina. Now, the path to victory right now for Donald Trump is the traditional Republican path to victory. It is not the Rust Belt path to victory. It is not. I mean, he has said over and over and over he's going to contest New York. That New York's going to be put in play because of his popularity in Long Island and upstate and elsewhere. Uh, I've been skeptical from the beginning. I don't know if I've said it on the show, but I've certainly told people privately. Not in the Sean Hannity I've told him privately since, but I've told people privately over and over that there is absolutely no way Donald Trump will win New York. Um, I don't know that he will. I think he can energize the ticket a little bit for some of the upstate races and Long Island races, but he's going to lose miserably in the city. And you cannot win statewide in New York State without doing decently. You can't lose 90-10 in New York City. There are just too many people. And then go ahead and expect to win the state. But there are you know, issues. Now, Donald Trump can certainly win Nevada, it's looking like. And that had been looked at. It was going to go blue. But there is no rewriting on the map. We don't see that right now. If you look at the current polling, that what's out there right now, there is no – there is the traditional – map that we've seen the last couple of years, the Republican path to victory, the Democratic path to victory is pretty predictable right now. And when you look at it, it's it's very, very narrow. Um, the pick of Tim Kaine, and with this we'll segue into the vice presidential debate, uh, the pick of Tim Kaine is looking like a very brilliant strategic move on Clinton's part. Because it has essentially put Virginia out of reach for the Republican. Now, Virginia had been a purple state. It had been trending Democratic because of large populations in the D.C. suburbs um, that have not been predictably, uh, reliably Republican. But Virginia, had you think of it, has been had been a red state that has now gone blue. It is definitely looking right now that is safely in the Democratic column. And that is 13 electoral votes. Uh, so that is a that is a big uh, well not a game changer but that is potentially a big um, strategic move on Clinton's part. Now where does where does Trump lead? He leads in Ohio still by a couple points. Um, he is losing in Florida. He's losing in in uh, uh, he's losing he's losing in Wisconsin. He's losing in Michigan. So there are, there are, the path to victory for Donald Trump right now is not great. Um, but it is not so much worse than what Mitt Romney faced. The question is, I mean, we go back to it, Mitt Romney lost. Um, and that seems to be where we're headed right now. The momentum that Donald Trump had, and that was self-described momentum, that was polling momentum, that was a lot of that was not necessarily momentum in the sense that Clinton was, that he was really gaining. It was more that Clinton was coming back down. Donald Trump is really not broken out, out of the, Low 40s in polling, um, you know, somewhere between 40 and 45 percent in most states has been pretty consistent. But Clinton has kind of come up and down. She's fluctuated uh, quite a bit. So we've seen that. But it is the traditional map that we're doing. Now, let's go to the vice presidential debate. I think the one thing takeaway, the biggest takeaway from the vice presidential debate is that we really don't need any vice presidential debates. I'm probably repeating something that people have said, but if you watch that, it was it was a mess. Uh, the moderator just lost control. 
uh, which is just, I think, inexcusable. I mean, you have one job. I understand you have very high-powered adult men who want to go at each other in a cage match. But you got to establish right away some ground rules. Uh, Tim Kaine was out of control. I mean, it just – I understand you want to prove a point. You want to be the attack dog. You want to attack Donald Trump. You want to make Mike Pence answer for everything that Donald Trump has to say. But don't do it by interrupting 100 times. It just makes the whole thing unwatchable. I mean, I, to, to me, that's what it was, unwatchable. It was, it was just – it, it it, it was a little bit excruciating. I have to it's, – it just because there were times you couldn't hear the two of them. And, you know, if you want to make Mike Pence look really good, just keep interrupting him and make yourself look bad. And that's kind of essentially what, you know, what we went through here. So that, to me, is the biggest takeaway. I mean, I don't think Tim Kaine – I think Tim Kaine did get a lot of things on the record. He's going to say, well, Mike Pence lied over and over about Trump's policies. But in effect, he didn't get his message across. And it's hard to say that he, you know, that that is where that Donald Trump is going to respond to him because on a style perspective, forget about the substance perspective, he was so off and a lot of people saw him as being off and hyper and aggressive that I don't think it just did well for the message itself. So let's talk about what Mike Pence did rather skillfully and artfully. And I would say with great Midwestern calm demeanor folksy demeanor kind of won over the audience, at least won over me just by kind of staying even keeled. Whereas Tim Kaine, as I said, was kind of hyperventilating. You know, he just basically took everything that Tim Kaine threw at him, all the Donald Trump statements, all the Donald Trump positions, all even some Mike Pence positions, such as his, praise for Vladimir Putin vis-a-vis or relative to Barack Obama and basically deflected, didn't defend them, didn't even bother, and essentially kind of said over and over that they weren't true. Uh, It's as if the Pence was kind of running on his own ticket. You know, it was quipped that Mike Pence and his imaginary running mate, because clearly his running mate was not Donald Trump, and that was the feeling that you got, is here's Mike Pence running for president in 2020 or trying to run for president in 2016, at least making a lot of Republicans feel, oh, here's a Republican. Here is a guy who's actually a Republican, a conservative, running for president. But, of course, he's running for vice president, which is, of course, why it goes back to the thing of that this debate itself is unconsequential because who really cares in the end what Mike Pence thinks? Who cares what Tim Kaine thinks? Because it's really what Clinton and Trump think it's their administration. It's what they're now. Yes. Are either of them prepared or are both of them prepared to be president? Yeah, we saw that. Okay. Both of them can be president, but people aren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton because of Tim Kaine. People aren't going to vote for Donald Trump because of Mike Pence. Well, some people might vote for Donald Trump because Mike Pence is a conservative validator because Trump is such an unknown politically that you might actually take Pence. And now, of course, Trump is taking credit for, I mean, there's two th- ways to look at the debate, and most people, a lot of people, a lot of pundits thought, well, Donald Trump is going to look at the debate as him being upstage because his performance was widely panned. Although I think in Trump world, at least in the very, very inner confines of tri- Trump world, there is this alternative reality that Trump won and that he had a fantastic performance. Uh, and I concede he had a great performance for the first 20 minutes, but the debate lasts another hour and 10 minutes past that. And after that, he was horrific. But the 
fact is here that Mike Pence didn't, from a, from a, from my perspective, didn't show say to me, okay, Donald Trump is a great candidate. Donald Trump should be president. He actually came to me with explained to me in a lot of ways why Donald Trump should not be president. Because he contrasted essentially his imaginary running mate as who espouses a lot of positions that I am in agreement with, particularly with regard to foreign policy, with regard to Russia, with regard to Syria, with regard to uh, Israel and the Middle East and nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, he basically said, what are you crazy? Of course, we're not going to give we don't believe in nuclear proliferation. We're not going to give nuclear weapons to Saudi Arabia and to South Korea and Japan. But of course, Donald Trump did say that. And he refused to be caught up in anything that Donald Trump said. So the imaginary running mate of Mike Pence is actually a guy I could support. But unfortunately, the imaginary running mate of Mike Pence is not Donald Trump. Now, there's two ways, of course, that Trump can look at this, as I said. You know, you can look at this as uh, Mike Pence upstaged me. He made he he ended up looking really good. Therefore, the ticket looked really good. And Trump can look at this as saying, I'm sorry, not not that he upstaged me. He actually augmented me. And Donald Trump says, here, this is my first hire as he has gone out and says, see what a great hire I did. I hired great people. And this has been the argument that a lot of Trump supporters have. And I think it's actually a valid argument in certain ways. To say, well, Trump might not be the most qualified. He's certainly not the most polished. He certainly doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't do his homework. He doesn't. But he hires good people. He's always hired good people. And that's why he's successful, because he surrounds himself with good people. Now, I think Mike Pence is a good, as we talked about when I talked about before, strategically, that Tim Kaine was a good running mate for Hillary Clinton by putting Virginia that much more out of reach for the Republicans. Mike Pence was a good uh, strategic hire much better than Newt Gingrich or Chris Christie because Mike Pence is of a different mold, clearly, who actually inspires some confidence, who is able to engender a adult approach to politics, to leadership, to the presidency, to Washington, to – but in a sense, he's the anti-Trump in so many ways. Because people are who are supporting Trump want the, for lack of a better word, they want the freak show. They want the circus. They want the craziness. They want the guy who goes into the, he's the bull in the china shop. He breaks everything because everything they feel is hopelessly broken and somebody's got to go around and break it. And you didn't get that from Mike Pence at all. So there's this contrasting style. Now, of course, the other side is, of course, that it was rumored and, of course, rejected. And, you know, I don't know these sources that are out there that Donald Trump was livid, that Mike Pence refused to refused to defend him. And he kind of went his own way and he was campaigning for Mike Pence 2020. And that's been the chatter out there over and over that that's what's going on. And therefore, that has led to turmoil. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, look. It's not that's not going to be determinative here in whether this this presidency is won or lost, because when it comes down to it, these are very well-known figures. It's not that people don't know who Donald Trump is, that people don't know. Well, people don't know necessarily who Donald Trump is, but people don't know the, the the Trump. People don't know Clinton. They do. They know these people, at least in their minds. They have this version of them that's out there. Um, now, let me get to the. Some uh, listener feedback. I talked about that 
earlier and this idea that I'm hopelessly anti-Trump and I spend 95 percent of my time uh, knocking Trump. And I take that seriously. And I, I want to address that for a second, because. As I said, I think I said it last week. Now, Trump is an unknown quantity. We don't know that much about him. We don't he doesn't have a record. We don't know. I mean, for example, everybody just has this assumption that Trump is better for Israel. And he's going to be better for Israel because Hillary couldn't possibly be worse. Well, I, I, I don't buy that at all. I mean, I don't even think that's a good argument because, number one, Hillary is not Barack Obama. And, you know, and of course, if you want to make the Democrat-Republican thing, but Trump is not a traditional Republican. He doesn't have any support in the foreign policy of establishment of the Republicans that where that bedrock support for Israel is. Um, the pro-Israel intelligentsia, if you will, is not supportive of him. They're not part of his team. Um, so where is there is nothing that leads me to believe that a person who basically says hands off Syria, we're not going to do anything on Syria, let the let them fight it out. Um, that type of what I believe to be reckless foreign policy and is going to be ultimately better for Israel or not. I mean, he could you know, there was a point in the campaign. Remind everybody should be reminded he didn't know the difference legitimately between Hamas and Hezbollah. That's a problem. I mean, that's a problem for me as a as a pro-Israel person. But it's not – but the re- knee-jerk reaction that, therefore, that automatically Trump is better for the Jews, you know, I mean, leave the anti-Semitism thing aside, which I find profoundly troubling, profoundly troubling. And I think all Jews should be very troubled by it. Um, just this w- w- inability to wholesale reject the anti-Semitic support that he has. But, you know, we'll leave that aside. I, I just want to – the reason that I spend time talking about Trump is because there is a phenomenon going on with regard to Trump. The fact that he won the nomination is a quite incredible thing. But the fact that he also makes so many unforced errors when it comes to politics, they bear pointing out. Because in the end, we're talking about politics here. We're talking about how to win elections, how people should win elections, and they're – and you know, kind of trying – take a little bit of a, a deep dive into some of the intricacies there. You know, that's why we talk about the electoral map, and that's why these things matter. We talk about whether, you know, what things are going to move the needle. And it, like it or not, you know, like Donald Trump or not, he is his own worst enemy when it comes to this campaign. He's his own champion, and it's, all, and his, it's totally propelled by his own personality, but he's also his own worst enemy at the same time. And, you know, and in a certain degree, um, you know, we've also seen here that uh, Hillary Clinton's own worst enemy is Bill Clinton. Um, You know, Bill Clinton goes off message this week and talks about that Obamacare is uh, it's crazy. It's the craziest thing ever. And you know what? He's right. I mean, people are legit, particularly small business owners are legitimately suffering under Obamacare now with the premiums and there's just the system. I mean, it's just a ridiculous system. It's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculously constructed system. At least Bill Clinton is giving voice to what a lot of people feel out there. Now, I just want to, with regard back to Trump for a second, I I want you know to, I think it's instructive. We saw a video of a deposition with regard to the case, the hotel case that Donald Trump is being sued by uh, the restaurateurs who were supposed to be in his in his Washington D.C. hotel. The uh, great ho- the hotel that he was going uh, that he's putting up, and they were being sued. The, he, uh, there's a lawsuit going on. There was a video deposition 
of that lawsuit. And they actually asked him a couple questions that I saw on there, which I thought were pretty interesting. They asked him whether he prepared it all for the lawsuit. He said no. Did you read anything into the lawsuit? He said no. Um, did you speak to anybody in advance? Yeah, I spoke to my lawyer for a couple minutes on my way here. Now, that almost seems like his debate prep, does it not? Does it not seem that, you know, he spends almost – now, he is an off-the-cuff, you know, uh, think-on-the-fly type of guy, and a lot of people like that about them. But in the end, you kind of get the feeling that he's the guy who just doesn't believe in doing homework. You know, he just doesn't like it. So therefore, let me figure out any way to get out of it because I'm really smart and I can figure out how to get out of it and I'll just uh, – and I'll wing it. And that's kind of the feeling that we could, you know, that you get with with regard to uh, Trump on this. But let's – I just you know, thought it was, uh, it was a little bit instructive. Let's just go to the taxes thing for a second because – the taxes bombshell that the New York Times said, I don't know if that is, you know, the bombshell as far as not paying taxes. I mean, I think it's bad. I think it's bad if you want to go into politics and not bad necessarily as a businessman. I think if you want to go into politics and you haven't paid taxes for 20 years, it's a little bit of a problem. And I think this, he, he should have released his taxes or not released, you know, if you're not, you don't have to run for president. I mean, the bottom line is if you're going to run for president, you should be releasing your taxes. That's it. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's been the custom. It's about transparencies, particularly when you have, when you're doing business with so many different entities out there and giving your business over to your children is really just not enough. But what, what is striking about this New York Times story about the taxes, about the loss is a billion dollars in one year. I mean, $916 million. I mean, how does one do that? I mean, that's just quite incredible that, person could go ahead and lose that much money, wipe out that much wealth in a single year. I Look, it's I, it's unrelatable from my perspective. I, I don't even have, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, it's not what my tax returns look like, but I, I don't have any idea how it's possible that you could lose that much money in a single year. It's in one year, in one calendar year, he lost that much money. It's quite incredible. So totally move topics for a second because we're almost out of time as we are usually are. Just want to identify Bridgegate <coughs> excuse me, for a second as we talk. You know, Bridgegate is that scandal that has torpedoed Chris Christie's rising career and now has ensnared the governor of New York once again, uh, Andrew Cuomo. They are saying, and it's been up, brought up in testimony, that there was a deal. And we, I think we've kind of talked about this once. We had uh, New York One's intrepid reporter, Zach Fink, on the show a little while back. And we talked about this potential that there was a deal out there that Chris Christie and Cuomo, that Cuomo would protect Christie in the Bridgegate scandal, whereby Christie would repay the favor as head of the Republican Governors Association by standing down and not funding Rob Astorino, who was Chris Christie, uh, who was Andrew Cuomo's. 2014 gubernatorial opponent. And, you know, Rob Astorino did better than expected. Full disclosure, I did work for Rob Astorino. I think he's a great guy. Westchester County Executive. And, you know, he got 40%. He lost. uh, Cuomo got low uh, in the low 50s. Um, There was a third-party candidate as well. And, you know, with another $10 million, I mean, Christie pumped a lot of money from the RGA into other races that were probably even as little winnable as New York. Um, although the RGA did have a good uh, record in 2014 in electing some Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts, places where Republicans generally don't win, perhaps that could have happened in New York also. But there seemed to have been this bargain that 
Chris Christie would not allow the RGA to provide any support for Rob Estorino. Now, I will say I was at an RGA dinner, uh, and I'm not sure exactly when the month was, but it was during the cycle. That would have been during the time. And Rob Estorino not only was not invited to the RGA dinner, as he would be as a candidate, Republican candidate running, they didn't even mention his name as a potential governor running for office, um, which is... You know, they just didn't they didn't even bother to talk about it when Christie was talking about the races that he was watching. So that kind of stuck with me. And, yeah, I mean, of course, was there such a bargain? I mean, we might never know. I can't doubt that there's any trail with regard to this. But in the well, in the realm of supposition, as well as conspiracies out there. Uh, it would seem plausible that this type of thing happened. And, you know, does this happen in the dark arts of politics out there? Well, you know, yeah, it's anyone's gets out there. I'm not going to throw any darts or point any fingers. So that's it for another uh, round of political talk here on the Nakam Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs and a Gemar Hasimatova to everybody.